This is Contra Radio from Contra.Scot. The comparisons are bleak. The predictions dark. The economy set to plunge into a decline of historic proportions. New COVID outbreaks in China have forced 65 million people back into lockdown. Authorities are reinforcing Beijing's zero COVID policy, and this requires partial or full. I've said before, Mr. Deputy Speaker, no return to boom and bust. We will not return to the old boom and bust. Well, hello, listeners, and welcome to Contra Capital. I'm Gregor Clooney. I'm a member of the Contra editorial board. And as usual, I'm joined by our illustrious editor, David Jameson. How are you doing, David? I'm doing great. Thanks very much. I'm looking forward to talk some political economy. Amazing. Thanks, David. And very excitingly, we actually have a proper economist on the show this time. Uh, We have uh, Mr. George Caravan, who, for good or for ill, has served on the Treasury Select Committee alongside characters like Andrew Bailey, the current governor of the Bank of England. And of course, although he doesn't like to talk about it, has previously been an SMP. PMP. Um, how are you doing, George? Hello, Greg. Glad to be on board. And a good economist? I don't know if there are any good economists. I prefer anti-economists, maybe. Okay, so we have a bona fide anti-economist on the show. So what we thought we would do for this episode is to cover some of the key themes that George has been developing in his analysis of the global economy in a series of excellent contributions to Contra.Scott. And maybe ambitiously, if we start with prospects for the global economy as a whole, um, I know that in some of your previous articles, George, you talked about how basically the one thing that's been pulling the global economy forward in the aftermath of 2008 and the credit crunch and and the Great Recession is Chinese state-led investment. And it's been Chinese growth that's been driving the global economy forward almost single-handedly. But now that's starting to slow down. So if you could just give us an overview, George, of of what's going on there, that'd be great. Sure thing. Well, you need to begin by understanding what capitalism is about. It's about accumulating capital. That's what the beast does. It's like you remember in in Jaws, um, they talk about sharks. You know, what sharks do is they eat and make baby sharks. Well, what capitalism does is it makes capital. There's investment that's realised as profit, and then there's more investment. Things goes round and round and round, and you reach a stage where there's overinvestment. When too much has been invested, the capitalists can't get their profits back, and the whole thing goes belly up. And we're in one of those phases at the moment. As you say, the capital accumulation there's been for the last 10, 12 years since the big banking crisis of 2008-9, the, the, the capital accumulation has been in really in three sectors. China, Chinese manufacturing. And I include within that Taiwan, because there's a big interconnection. We don't realize it so much in the West, big interconnection between investment and, and manufacturing in Taiwan and China, which underlies some of the current tension about China wanting to take over Taiwan. Second uh, other sector was American high technology. The big five American high tech companies make super profits. Uh, and they've sucked in investment and they have dominated uh, Western uh, economic growth. Uh, plus there's Germany. Germany a kind of hybrid, 
Germany depended very much on uh, cheap Russian oil and gas, but selling luxury goods to China. So we've got a setup there. American high tech provides the technology. China builds the machines. The Germans supply the luxury goods. Okay. All of that has gone into a kind of crisis of overproduction. Let's take America first. That's the, that's the, that's the interesting one. Five years ago, America, the big five American high tech companies, Apple, uh, Microsoft, Google, uh, Amazon, and Facebook. They changed the names. Basically, it was the five. Five years ago, they were a fifth of the entire value of American uh, shares, dominated the American economy. And they were making profits around 60% uh, a year. Incredible super profits, monopoly profits. In five years, that's crashed because they simply, as, as, as happens in the capitalist cycle, they overinvested. Um, they're now, they've now got about $600 billion worth of fixed capital when they used to have nothing because they were internet companies. They've got, they spend about a trillion dollars a year on variable capital and wages and, and consumables. They're spending all that cash. So that is just eaten into their profits. And profits have gone within five years from about 60% to about 20%. Now, 20% is still a lot, but it's on a downward path. And that's frightened investors. And so um, this year, we have seen uh, share values in uh, high-tech companies in America just crash, crater, go to the floor. I mean, um, Facebook, now called Meta, has lost three-quarters of its share value. And when, when, you, when you lose share value, you destroy wealth, you destroy investment, you, you really create a crisis in the banking system because the banks, particularly big investment banks, have been advancing capital in order to for these companies to grow and to buy each other against shares. Share values have collapsed, so the banks have ended up with lots of debt and no collateral. And we've yet to see the outcome of that. We're going to see that, I think, in the next year or two because capitalist crises of oil production always end up on the surface as banking crises. They begin within the, the production process, but they always end up as a, as a, a stonking great banking crisis. That's yet to come. China, uh, as you mentioned, China is where, where the machines get made and re-exported. Cheap labor makes the machines sold back to the rest of the world. But again, um, there's been over-expansion in China, funded by a lot of cheap um, bank loans. So the Chinese banking system is very rickety. Chinese profitability of Chinese companies has crashed. Uh, add to that COVID and lockdowns, and Chinese capital is in very dire straits. Um, a lot of the funding of Chinese uh, manufacturing comes via foreign investment, which I'll come to, but from domestic sources, basically from from Chinese um, local government and provincial governments um, who basically have stolen all the land and property from the peasants uh, and have used that to, uh, you know, to turn into cash to invest in companies. Um, so they've reached, so they've, that's generated a huge property boom and that's gone bust. So Chinese growth has just slowed and slowed and slowed. So the Chinese economic miracle is over. And that partly explains, I think, uh, the, the shift to an even more authoritarian political regime in China as they try to hold things together. Then there's um, the German economy, which leaves Europe, which is in serious crisis. The cheap energy from Russia, which underpinned it all, is gone. Uh, the luxury markets in China have gone as the, the various capitalist blocs end up in, in direct confrontation. The Chinese are still accepting a lot of German 
capital investment. And I think this is not understood in the West, that though, though the, the German economy is in serious trouble, its initial response is not to, be do any, not to do anything different, but to try and do more of the same. Okay, they can't get the cheap um, gas from Russia, but they're pouring money. This year, the Germans have actually vastly expanded their investment into China, going to run them into confrontation with America. In, in the end, I think that we're going to see over the next year or two the expansion of the political crisis between America and China uh, with the Germans dragged in, the Germans forced to choose. So the, Ger- the Germans are in a real kind of existential economic crisis because they don't have a model about where to go next. And now, um, because they've kept a reasonably sized manufacturing sector, they've got a big manufacturing workforce, and they're now suffering huge strike waves and a huge um, um, inflation wave, uh, worse than the UK, actually, uh, as a result of, of the unions responding to that. So the three big psych centres of capital expansion for the last decade are all in crisis. Thanks so much for those introductory remarks, George. And you get a flavour there, listeners, of the depth of understanding and the sophistication of the problems which are being elucidated here. So we have three drivers of global capitalist growth in uh, the Chinese productive economy, the German export-led model, and US monopoly high-tech sectoral production. And all of those have come up against barriers. I wonder if just to kind of backtrack and and draw out one of the crucial dynamics here, we've spoken a lot already about a crisis of overproduction. And in one of your articles, you speak to the fact that high-tech monopoly profits are becoming endangered because what, what you effectively get is market saturation. There becomes a point where the world market will not, at an appropriate price, absorb more mobile phones, for instance. And this is my kind of understanding of a key Marxist account of capitalist crisis is that capitals look to accumulate and grow competitively without regard for previous investments made by rival capitalists. So say you have a global market which can absorb a billion uh, mobile phones at various price levels. Each individual capitalist will therefore try and sell a billion mobile phones into that market. And and what happens is, whilst that's rational for them as an individual firm to maximize profit, in terms of the system as a whole, it creates this macro level irrationality. And it means that you actually get overcapacity, you get a huge amount of production which can't be sold, which can't realize surplus value, and then you get this kind of systemic crisis. Is is that what's going on in terms of high-tech production in, in the U.S.? Uh, you, you summed it up brilliantly, Gregor. That's exactly what is happening. Markets become saturated, and therefore the returns start to fall, uh, and everybody then doubles down trying to sell more, uh, and the, the whole thing, the whole problem gets worse. I mean, in, in mobile phones, that's a perfect example. The global market is virtually saturated, so you can't go on selling the same volume. And then uh, mobile phones, have, particularly for Apple, for instance, charge huge markups. But that becomes eroded. The first default of the high-tech companies has been to try and diversify into other sectors, as well as keeping the mobile, keeping their, their key products. So Apple, for instance, has diversified into uh, making TV to sell over its phones. But that's only that's only actually um, added to the outlay without increasing the profits added to the uh, profit crunch, if you like. You can see a similar process happening in cars. 
car market uh, gets saturated, the car companies, in order to try and protect their profits, shift from um, low-value cars to high-value cars, um, which have lots of microchips stuffed into them. That's led to a global demand for uh, microchips. Currently this year, demand for microchips from car manufacturing has run ahead of supply. That's forced up the price. So that's added to the inflationary the inflationary cycle. So wherever the, the capitalists try and resolve the problem, they only add to it because it's not planned. It's a reaction, kind of spasm reaction. At each, at each stage, the problem only gets worse till eventually the whole thing explodes in their face. Can I just add to that? Because I think that there's a really interesting example of this going on right now, which is the crisis that we're seeing amid the social media giants. You mentioned Facebook as one of the big five. It's obviously recently changed its name to Meta. Um, it tried to launch something called the Metaverse, which is expected to absorb years and years of losses before it turns a profit. Elon Musk has recently taken over Twitter, and that company has only turned a profit in one year of its entire uh, existence. And you see this across the board with these um, social media companies, year on year on year, making losses. But there's always an expectation from investors that eventually this will result in profitability. Is that another sign of this crisis of overproduction, the fact that there's quite consistent high levels of investment in sort of uh, low profitability companies, always based on unrealized expectations in profitability sometime in the future? Um, yes, absolutely. But to explain why that is a problem now, as opposed to in the past, um, there's the whole issue of central banks printing money. Um, the, the response to the 2008 10 banking crisis was a, a unique one. All, all capitalist crises end up in some unique solution as the capitalists try and reinvent. What they did in 2008-10 was they resorted to central banks, the behest of governments, resorted to something called quantitative easing, which is just printing money. Um, but they printed it in a particular way to pump it into two particular markets, into the markets for buying shares to artificially keep share prices high and essentially into the property market. So we then had inflation and speculative booms in two things initially, share prices and property. By keeping share prices artificially high through printing money, through central banks printing money, we kept a lot of fictitious capital in existence. And so parallel to the process of creating um, surplus value out of making things and selling it and uh, generating profit. We had a lot of financial speculation. And David was just talking about the giant rise in share values in the big high-tech companies, underpinned by the super profits, but the huge increase in their share values became an end in itself, a speculative end in itself. Because the share price, everyone assumed, the capitalists in a kind of frenzy of gambling, assumed those share prices would go on rising. Uh, and therefore, that could become collateral for more borrowing and more spending. And so we have created a financial overlay, which is very fragile and very dangerous. And what we've seen this year, I, I don't think the, the, the media or the politicians have caught up in this, is that a lot of that fictitious capital that grew out of the quantitative easing has been wiped out, has disappeared. 
as the profits underlying it have disappeared. Uh, and that must at some point have an impact on the stability of the financial markets, the, the retail banks, but particularly the investment banks, which are now um, the basic conduits, the basic channels uh, for investment in the rest of, of the global economy. You can see this in particular in, in Meta, which David was, was mentioning there, Facebook has wars. Under the peculiarity of the way that um, the Facebook ownership, Meta ownership runs, the general shareholders... Uh, really can't um, control what the management is doing. And so the, the, the company has poured huge sums of money into investment in, the, in, in, in new technology, which if it ever showed some kind of uh, return would be a decade on from now. Uh, and so the company has just poured money down the drain to no return. Uh, some of the other high-tech companies, uh, Apple, for instance, and, and Microsoft, were slightly cannier in that they at least put some of their super profits uh, to use giving back to the shareholders, which has kept their share prices slightly better than, than Meta and, and Amazon. Um, so very, very rickety. So really two processes going on, a real process in, in uh, production, and sale for profit. And that's, that is stalled, superimposed on that, a financial superstructure, particularly uh, a new one dominated by money printed by central banks that artificially raised share values. That edifice is now collapsing. Uh, and so we can expect to see the real uh, manufacturing crisis telegraphing itself into a financial crisis, I think, sometime in the next 18 months. My analysis of what's effectively going on here and i'd be really interested george to hear if, if this is a take that you would agree on is that following the demise of the keynesian state of the post-war epoch of state economic management where the state used social surplus to strategically invest in growing the economy creating jobs uh, generating growth and securing wage goods and, and housing and healthcare for everybody. Um, however idealized that period was, it, its demise has led to a situation where the state uses its social surplus, the tax base, to inflate share prices and to fill the current accounts of its industrial champions. And those champions are those winners from the previous systemic cycle of accumulation. So Apple made money through a particular combination of technologies principally developed by the state and the military, uh, but packaging it in a really nice user-friendly and attractive way with some examples. I mean, I can I can remember that mouse that charged only upside down and so it couldn't be used well. Charging, so they've made some mistakes, but the problem is that they've handed over effectively all of this liquidity to companies that were good at one thing, but it doesn't necessarily mean that they're good at whatever the next thing is going to be. And they're not really suitable institutions to drive strategic investment across the economy. And yet they are being, their share price is being inflated and their bank accounts are being filled to, to a level where they are the massive institutional investors in the economy, despite having no democratic accountability or oversight of economic development as a whole. Um, uh, yes, I think I think the the comparison between now and the uh, World War Two and immediate post-war era 
era is quite is quite instructive. Um, the thirties depression had seen a total collapse in investment and in consumer spending, and under the kind of ideological influence of people like Keynes, the state was pers- persuaded to step in. First of all, during World War Two, obviously through investment in, in arms production and arms manufacturing, uh, and then that continued into the um, civilian economy after World War II. If you read Keynes, Keynes is a great English uh, bourgeois economist, very sophisticated guy, very knowledgeable about capitalism and its weaknesses. Um, And he argues very strongly that, in fact, um, the casino, he uses the phrase, the casino economy of of, um, stocks and shares, which he made himself um, a millionaire using, but he was very cynical about it. He said that the danger of, of, of relying on, on the casino economy, of course, was that um, the moment anything went wrong, you got the financial crisis, people, the, the bourgeoisie withdrew from the market. And uh, he was particularly censorious of the English bourgeoisie, who actually, post-World War One had simply pulled out of the real economy, just, you know, put all their money into shares and lived off shares. And share dividends. So Keynes argues after World War Two, and if you read his writings, he's actually very sophisticated. He says maybe the state has to play a role in maintaining the level of investment. Now, he's actually, there's a subtlety here. He's not actually talking about maintaining the level of consumer demand. That comes comes later. It's more current kind of idea. He's talking specifically about the state maintaining a level of investment in plant and machinery, and therefore in um, uh, in maintaining a capital accumulation. And he's not saying necessarily the state should do the investment itself, though he wasn't against that, but he's arguing that the state should at least organise taxation, uh, fiscal policy, in a way, and, and interest rates, in a way that ensures that investment in plant and machinery is, maintains a certain strategic level, which, of course, you could say is exactly what happens in China these days. What what has happened with the Chinese um, uh, state economy is the Chinese government and Chinese state banks act as guarantors for a particular level of high investment in Chinese manufacturing, which has allowed them to grow over the last 20 years and in, indeed maintains a degree of stability in the world economy. Of course, that doesn't get you out of the uh, the many contradictions of capitalism, and ultimately that goes wrong because you have overproduction. But for the last period, certainly the Chinese government has followed Keynesian dictates, you might say, uh, in using the state to maintain a level of um, public investment or state investment that allows uh, manufacturing to proceed and expand. One more thing I do have to add to that because it's always forgotten in discussions about bourgeois economics. Economics is when we talk about capital and we talk about uh, profit, we talk about all sorts of economic categories. These are all, in a sense, fictions. They're black magic. Because what really the economy is about is people, is labour power. You can't have anything made or delivered unless you have workers to make it and deliver it. And the, the, the what really underpinned Chinese expansion and Chinese contribution to global economic growth in the last 20, 25 years was the fact that incorporating China incorporated tens of millions of new workers into the global economy. That's where the value was created. And that's what um, underpinned the growth of the last 20, 30 years. You can wrap that up in talking about capital and, and monetary terms and so on and banks. But the, what 
was strategically significant was incorporating vast new numbers of workers from China, um, from Vietnam, from Indonesia. Uh, and those workers, the, their value has now been absorbed into the system. And uh, there are no more workers. And that's really the long-term strategic uh, implication uh, uh, for the global economy. If there, if there are no extra workers, um, then where do you increase value? You can only increase it through technology. And of course, that therefore has led to the technology wars, which we're now seeing between America and China. I think that one of the valuable things about this kind of tripartite system that you've developed, you know, Germany, the United States, China, is that for many years and up until the present day, and perhaps increasingly since the Russian invasion of Ukraine, large parts of analysis on the right, but also on the left, have resorted to this classic thing of these different quadrants of the world system represent fundamentally different and opposed systems. So you have the Chinese model, which some people bizarrely apparently still regard as socialist in some way. You have the, the US model, which is all obviously the dominant. And then you have the German model, which is sometimes held up as like a third pole between China and the United States. What I think your analysis does instead is say, well, of course, there are differences between these models, apart from anything else. They are providing different things to the world market, um, but they are all reliant on each other. They are at once in competition with each other and uh, mutually interlinked and inseparable as part of a kind of holistic system. I mean, how important is it to bear that in mind in the coming years? I mean, both in terms of the military buildup, but also as an analysis of why the system is starting to break down. Yes, I think, I think that sums it up, David. And we've been through these cycles before where capitalist competition forces uh, a step towards globalization and a global integrated market, um, driven by the need to centralize finance and re-export that finance and re-export investment and capture foreign markets. And we saw that through most of the 19th century. But eventually the constituent parts begin to come into deep competition with each other, and they use their access to state actors to press for concessions, and that leads to um, inter-imperialist rivalry. I mean, we don't talk about imperialism very much these days, certainly in, in contemporary economics. Bourgeois economics is a kind of forgotten category, and it's kind of limited to a notion of, of formal colonialism where a Western country formally annexes a, a developing country. But uh, imperialism exists today and is actually at a greater to a greater extent and, and a greater development today than it ever was. Imperialism in the sense that you don't just have individual capitals competing at a global basis. You have them protecting themselves and organizing themselves and securing their, their markets through access to individual state actors. And so the American state um, is acts very much on behalf of uh, American capital. And I mean, part, I would argue, of, the, of the, the schism within American politics is to do with the schisms within American capitalism itself. And the high-tech companies are overwhelmingly run by what we would call liberals, doesn't make them nice people, but liberals in the sense that they, they want um, a, a liberal global market. And um, they, but even that has run into contradictions because they are now behind Biden, who's um, 
recent moves against to, to ban the sale of chips, uh, uh, electronic chips to China, or to invest in, in chip making in China. Biden's uh, economic sanctions against China go far beyond anything Trump ever proposed, would you believe? And that's very much at the behest of pressure from the American high-tech companies who now feel themselves under pressure from China. And it's, of course, the American high-tech companies that have been funding the Democratic Party, which is by no means anywhere near being a party of the left or a party of the workers. Equally, Trump, uh, if you look at his backers, his backers are very largely domestic American capital, um, which has suffered a lot from foreign imports and which is looking for um, protectionism. Uh, and you get you get similar in China, uh, very complex. I think I mentioned at the beginning, very complex relationship between China and Taiwan. Um, the biggest chip manufacturers, which supply the world market, are located in China, but they are owned by Taiwanese firms and funded by Taiwanese money. So part of the pressure that's leading the Chinese to leadership to think about annexing annexing. Taiwan is to get hold of those factories. So we are gradually moving to from economic competition to political competition and thence to military competition, exactly as happened in previous eras, as happened at the end of the 19th century, and again happened at, at, in the 1930s and early 1940s. I think we're seeing a similar shift where, the, where um, economics determines politics and politics turns to, to violent clash of arms. I think that was a really useful provocation from David and a clarification and, and reassertion there from George about the ongoing utility and importance of understanding the world market in inter-imperialist terms. And I think often when we analyze the global economy and, and geopolitics, we come we become confused when we don't start from the level of the world market. We look at in what precise way are different state capitals, different collections of capitals and, and state actors inserted within that market? How do, is the division of labor, division of capital within that market developing? And then what is the at a macro level the state of that market? Because often we kind of hypostasize or we reify particular strategies of accumulation, particular ways of making money as being a result of a particular kind of national characteristic or national political bent. So the US stands for the free market, China stands for state-led investment and so on. But really, if if you think about it in terms of the division of labor, the US stands for the free market insofar as it has an established competitive advantage in high-tech sectors and therefore will benefit from a lack of protectionism elsewhere. China, obviously, in recent decades, has been ascending the value ladder um, of productive industries. Every capitalist state in the history of capitalist development has done that in a protectionist way um, and in a state-led way. It's actually hardly conceivable to imagine that you can develop productive industry without a key developmental role of of the state and so on. And then also, you know, sometimes commentators are confused because in one moment, actors look like they're all collaborating and doing a kind of ring a ring of roses together, holding hands, kumbaya and all that. And then the next minute, war breaks out. But actually, the state of the world market, whether it's expanding, whether it's stagnant, or whether it's actually contracting, shapes a whole different set of relational dynamics between competitors. So it can be positive some. So an example of the 
post-World War II, there was a positive sum collaborative dynamic between Western capitals because of the huge opportunity for profitability, given the level of capital destruction during the war. When market saturation in consumer goods emerged in the mid-1970s, suddenly it was zero-sum. So one capital could only benefit and one state capital could only benefit through grabbing market share from another. And so competition reigned in a newly intense way. So I think that stuff's really important, but I'd really like to kind of push us on a little bit now. And Giorgio already mentioned that often what you get um, with capitalist crisis is a crisis of overproduction, a material overcapacity within uh, global markets, but that these are often reflected proximately or immediately in forms of financial or, or banking crisis. I wonder if you could speak about that in general and also in relation to the new inflation, which you theorize and which is shaping all of our kind of economic lives right now. I think, as you said right at the very beginning, Gregor, um, capitalist crises are always different. They're always particular uh, as well as being generals, that they always have a unique characteristic. Uh, and what we're seeing uh, at the moment is the return of an inflation that we've not seen for 45 years, 50 years. And I remember two years ago, the end of 2020, the Bank of England was publishing its quarterly report saying this inflation that's appeared will go away very quickly. No, it's strange, shouldn't be here. We'll go away right, you know, within months. And it didn't. And anyone who really knew what was going on could see that the inflation was going to stick around for a while. And what is happening is that as profitability has been squeezed, companies have tried to protect their profit margins by raising prices. Some thought they were in a strong position to do that, particularly if, if they had a technological monopoly. Others were just chancing their arm. Others were shifting their uh, their production up the value chain, as you mentioned, um, in order to see if they could justify raising prices and dropping uh, product lines which were at, at low val at low at low um, margins. But at the same time, as moving to high margins, jacking up the price, which is what's happened in the shift towards SUVs in the car market. Now, most bourgeois economists. Uh, have not noticed this underlying process of companies trying to protect profit margins by raising prices. Because the general view uh, amongst the bourgeois economists is that inflation is a monetary phenomenon. It's just an accident of printing too much money. So that a lot of economists and politicians, indeed on the right, have pointed to the quantitative easing that central banks introduced um, at the start of uh, the banking crisis, 2008. Uh, and again, of course, last year, the year before, during the COVID crisis, central banks, particularly in um, Britain and America, had a second round of quantitative easing, printed even more money, actually, than they printed the first time round in the banking crisis, in order to keep up economic activity. So a lot of people in the bourgeois, in the bourgeois amongst the bourgeois economists explain the current inflation as simply because the Bank of England and the Federal Reserve in America got it wrong, they printed too much money. Now, that's not, that would not be the Marxist analysis. The Marxist analysis would be that there's a real fundamental shift in the, in, uh, in the real economy and manufacturing, in the capital accumulation process. That, that overproduction is squeezing profitability. 
But uniquely at this point in time, um, the uh, companies in, in, in America and Europe and Britain uh, have been able to raise prices, um, to inflate prices in order to try and protect their profitability. And the reason they can do that, of course, is there's more liquidity around that the bank, the central banks have printed money. But the, the printing of the money, particularly during COVID, was not the cause of the inflation. It's facilitated the ability of companies to raise their prices. Now, can companies go on raising prices indefinitely? Well, what's happening, of course, is there's a response from the, uh, from the working class. And we have strike waves opening up everywhere. And we have a fight by um, people in the trade unions and public sector unions to raise wages in order to protect real living standards. So the outcome uh, of where the inflation goes will be determined by class struggle and the outcome of, of the economic crisis will be determined by class struggle, not by simple economic policy. Well, and just to finish, what we saw in the 1970s, the last time we had generalised inflation, was huge strike wave and... Um, the, the point in the 20th century when the working class in the Western world managed to raise the share of profits in overall uh, an overall economy to its highest real level was during the 1970s. There is a, a media conspiracy, a capitalist bourgeois economic conspiracy, to pretend that the 1970s were a period of disaster, all these strikes, the economy collapsed, it was terrible, we shouldn't go back to that. The working class quite rationally defended itself in the 1970s by demanding wage increases, and it won them, and it raised working class um, living standards and the share of wages going to the working class to its highest ever level historically. Uh, and that w w forced, of course, a shift in, in bourgeois tactics. That's when you would get the arrival of Thatcher and Reagan to try and combat those unions. So what we're going to, I think the, the outcome of the, of the economic crisis over the next two years is not going to be determined by economic policy. What does Rishi Shunak do? What, do they, what does the American Federal Reserve do in interest rates? It will be determined by class struggle and whether working people can protect themselves against the, the, in, the rise in prices that companies are forcing on them in order to protect profits. Brilliant. Thanks, George. And we, we've discussed in previous episodes of the podcast the fact that prices are obviously part of an exchange mechanism between class actors in the economy. So prices determine how value is distributed across the economy and how we each access the social product and in what proportion. And when, when you enter into a period of inflation, there's a radicalization of those relationships of exchange. So, And there's a competitive dynamic whereby the firms that can raise their prices are able to capture additional profit. And those that are unable to, to raise prices, obviously a decline in their margins. And when it comes to labor, of course, if wages rise at a rate which is lower than inflation, then obviously that's they are devalued in real terms. The proportion of the social product, the goods which are produced, which those wages can command and can buy is effectively reduced. And this is, you know, to return to Keynes just momentarily, it's interesting that in the general theory, Keynes celebrates the fact that unions historically haven't been able to protect the real value of wages. So 
unions tend to protect nominal value of wages, but they're in, t- in periods of high inflation are typically unable to secure wage rises which match inflation. And, and this is part of a general letting off of steam in the capitalist economy. It's the way that capital recovers ground by increasing its share of uh, the social product, the, the capital share, the profit share, through effectively and in real terms devaluing wages and recovering profitability in that way. So obviously what we what we've seen from capitalist governments across the West and in the UK in particular is to use the power of the state to protect the profit share and to protect uh, the rate of profit in, in this context. So a huge amount of tax money of socialized wages has been used to secure these uh, valorized monopoly prices for energy companies. And it has effectively, you know, it's bankrolled these prices rather than um, intervening to to reduce them to make them uh, concretely more more affordable for for households. What's the alternative here? Like, you know, imagine we were in a position where you know socialists might be in in control of the state. How might we act differently in terms of responding to this this new inflation? Well, as you point out, Gregor. Ultimately, within the confines of the capitalist system, a reformist strategy is not going to work. The, the, the unions cannot indefinitely go on winning wage increases to protect the real value uh, of the wage good. What happened in the 1970s, to, to underline that, is yes, through the 1970s, um, the share of national income going to wages rose because of the success of the uh, industrial unions uh, in winning wage increases, which were, which then opened space for public sector workers also to have wage increases forced out on the state. But by the end of the, the 1970s, um, uh, the bourgeois class simply stopped investing. You know, if, if the workers were, were, taking, were taking more and more in, uh, uh, in, in wages and profits were being squeezed despite the inflation, uh, it was just there was an investment strike. And uh, that's what precipitates the arrival of Thatcher and Reagan and the arrival of um, neoliberalism and the smashing of the unions and a return to a more rip-roaring capitalism. Ultimately, I mean, it's a horrible contradiction that the success of the unions in the 1970s leads to an investment strike, leads to mass unemployment, leads to uh, a a really vicious response from the bourgeoisie. In the mid-1970s, what, the only way out of, the, of the, that contradiction was to abolish capitalism. There is no way out. Uh, at some point, the system will grind down the workers' reformism. Reformism is not going to be a way out. Um, and you can end up in all sorts of contradictions. You can end up with um, those organised sections of the working class that are able to get uh, a better deal than other sections, um, uh, you know, being split off from the, the less well-organised parts of the working class. Uh, I think what we might see in the next um, year or two, uh, orchestrated attempts to um, brand public sector workers going on strike, nurses going on strike, you know, blaming them for deaths in the, in the ward and so on. We'll, we'll see a lot of ideological fighting going on. So the solution, um, uh, there isn't one within the confines of capitalism. If we had a workers' government, what it would do would be um, simply to take control of prices. And I uh, let me just reinforce this. During what, what, what we've seen in the last year 
is governments in America and in uh, Britain and now in Germany borrow huge amounts of money, which they'll eventually have to pay back through tax rises, uh, to subsidize the price of energy. Now, in World War II, when each bourgeois class was up against it, face existential death at the hands of another bourgeois class, they simply froze prices. It's, you know, just pass a law. You tell, an, or you tell an energy company, you can't raise prices, guys. You're raising prices um, when you don't have to. You can still make a profit. You want to stay in those contradictory terms. You can just ban price rises like we did in World War II. If you raise your prices, we put you up against the wall and shoot you. We throw you in jail. But what we, we but still, you know, we're in a ridiculous, insane, you know, another one of the, every new capitalist crisis produces new insanities. Um, we are now borrowing, capitalist governments are borrowing vast billions, billions of money to subsidize energy companies to um, uh, raise their prices. It's, it's utter madness. Just tell them not to. So it's one of the first things a socialist government would do, a government that was in any way connected to the working class, would just be to ban energy price rises. Done deal. I just wanted to pick up on something that both Gregor and George have mentioned here, which is um, the class relation at the heart of these inflationary pressures. So as Gregor says, capitalism uses inflation to recover ground uh, from from labour to improve its own share of the value being created in the economy. And George mentioned that in the 1970s, of course, the working class's share was very, very much higher than it is today. One of the big developments in recent decades in capitalism is that the inequality between capital and labour in terms of the share of the wealth of society uh, has massively favoured, you know, gone over to capital. My question is, what are the consequences of capitalism using, you know, capitals using inflation to try and improve their profits, which are under pressure in this period? In a situation where the working class doesn't have <laughs> much of a share to, 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 to thieve from, basically, uh, where there's this historic imbalance between the working class and, and the capitalist class already. So the question is really, what is the scope for using inflation to inflict a major defeat on the working class um, by shifting value? Uh, to the bourgeoisie, and indeed, if if is there much more that can be squeezed out of the working working class? I think it's different in different parts of the world. Uh, the German the German unions have been quite successful in the last year in forcing wage increases from major German companies and the German state. So I think that that's made the German ruling class very wary about how to proceed. We've seen we've seen. Uh, German politicians talk about a step change in how where the German economy is going. There's been a lot of talk about um, Germany pivoting towards the hydrogen economy, but in fact, I'm surprised that the German the German ruling class has made very little change in its, its business plans. And I think it looks like they're simply are kind of caught in the headlights, don't quite know where where to go. In Britain, one of the problems for the ruling class is that so much of investment is in land, and the inflation has led fed through to rise in property prices. So significant parts of the British ruling class are doing very well out of the inflation, uh, while um, more and more people are finding it difficult to actually um, purchase houses. Uh, so I think there, uh, in Britain, there really is the prospect that you could significantly diminish working class standards of living. 
by essentially driving people out of home ownership into um, smaller and smaller and very expensive rented accommodation. In America, um, you, you can see quite a, a split geographically between uh, the states where all traditional industry is still quite strong and where they have been able to uh, extract some um, uh, profit. Um, I mean, one of the things that inflation does is it doesn't just move between the value between the classes. It can lead to a distribution between um, sectors of the ruling class. The, the sector of the ruling class that is really frightened at the moment are those with financial assets because inflation, of course, devalues them uh, as much as it erodes um, working class wages. I think that for the financial bourgeoisie, financial class in both America and the UK over the next period, um, there's going to be a tremendous pressure on the state to reduce inflation and to protect the real value of their assets. Uh, and that might lead to a conflict with the industrial bourgeoisie, who are less less worried, in a sense, because inflation pushes up their their revenue streams and ultimately protects their profits. Um, so there, there'll be a, there'll be a sharpening of intercapitalist rivalry in some ways, uh, as well as recent tension uh, between the two great classes. Excellent, thanks, George. And a reminder there that a rising rate of inflation may prefigure a sharpening of class conflict both between capital and labour and amongst individual class fractions, so within capital, between the industrial and financial bourgeoisie in George's example there. So I think that's a fantastic place to end for today, Uh, certainly a conversation that we hope will be ongoing. We'd love to have you back on the podcast, uh, George, and we can once again make use of your big brain. But for today, I think that's been a a really rich and and fascinating conversation. I hope it's something that uh, listeners at home have enjoyed enjoyed and just a reminder please do check out the rest of our content on contra.scot and the other fantastic podcasts that are available on contra radio and on the variety of different podcast services you may use okay so we'll see you again on the next episode of contra capital want more like this subscribe to contra radio on our soundcloud itunes spotify or wherever you get your podcasts Sign up to our regular newsletter at contour.substack.com and find great articles and more at contour.scot. We really rely on listeners like you to help us grow. In return, you get access to exclusive content and events by joining our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash contourscot.com.